that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. We're doing Rams. Haven't done them in a while. Doug Maurice here by myself. We are going to get into some Ohio State-Michigan stuff that I'm not trying to like tease you guys into oblivion, but it's hard to dive into Michigan in the midst of spring football when there's like lots of on-field Ohio State football happening. But I, there's this conversation that we need to have, and we're going to have a mini version of it off some texture rants that were sent in. And we have a plan at Cleveland.com where we're going to dive into Michigan in a much bigger way a little bit after spring football ends. Okay, we have a plan. We had a meeting about it the other day. But we're we're probably going to have to get into some of it like right after spring football and talk about it here because we, we got to get where you guys are in Michigan. This is not that. This is a taste of that. And I'm sorry it's not more in depth, but I have to, we have to get our ducks in a row. I need to get a survey out to you guys, get real thoughts about the status of where things are right now. We're going to do some Ohio State women's basketball, men's basketball, Big Ten basketball at the very end. If you're not interested in basketball, that'll be the last segment. So it's all football for the first two segments, maybe a tiny bit of nonsense at the end of segment two. And we'll start off with this. And again, we always appreciate people sending in their rants. Doug, I don't have a rant, but I know you like hearing stuff like this. I was on a business trip to Asia last week, and I was wearing an Ohio State shirt for my 13-hour flight, mainly because it's charcoal gray and hides how much I sweat. Real talk. I was walking around the Taipei airport, and a stranger told me, let's go Buckeyes from the 817. Nuts, right? It's just life. Life is a Buckeye fan. This one really quick. Here's a rant for you. I'm sick and tired of living in the Midwest, where football season ends right as we are getting hit with snowstorms and 18-degree weather for two months. I'm sick and tired of that because I get into a three-month-long depression because it feels like I just lost the love of my life while it's also being gray outside. And yeah, you'll say just move to the South, but when you have kids and you have friends here and all of your family lives here, it's not always that simple. So to conclude this rant, I simply believe football should be played twice per year, spring and fall. So this brings me back to like the pandemic year when I was all four a spring college football Big Ten season when that was briefly on the table. And I was all in for that. I will say this this rant got me thinking about this. We see the XFL, right, which is out there right now. I was, I'm was i recording this Sunday night. These rants were sent about a week ago because I said send rants, and then we got backed up on some other pods. So they're all still good. But there was like an XFL game on when I was walking through the airport on Sunday. I was picking up my daughter. And so, like, right, I don't watch the XFL, but that's out there as a football option, is it not? I do think if we get to a point where there's a version of college football and then there's like a minor league version of football that is attached to the NFL, and that really to me is the only way that a secondary league is ever going to work. Like NFL Europe was vaguely that for a moment, but I think you have to have a, a more structured world where you can really get that minor league feel. And I think it would work and it should be in the spring. And that you play college football in the fall, and then if you don't want to play college football and you want to go straight to the pros, but the pros want to have you not be putting your 19-year-old body in against 26-year-old men, you play in a real minor league. We've seen it with the G League in basketball, right? So I, I, I think there's a world where that could work for football, and I think that would be the way to do it, and that people would get into it. And I, I don't know the exact structure of it, but I would not be surprised if in maybe not my lifetime, but yours, that we see a real, 
real secondary football league, minor league something. I mean, the USFL did it once upon a time. I don't know. I don't think splitting the best guys. Now, another league can pop up. They can do whatever they want to do. But I don't think splitting the best guys is the way to do it. I think a real minor league where you feel like you're seeing young stars on the rise that you're going to later see with your favorite NFL team and it's draft picks and it's maybe a, maybe you have a bigger draft. I don't know. I do think there's a world. I think there's an appetite for it. And they just need to figure it out. I don't think it's quite there yet. But I do I do understand that person saying there. that's how important football is in a lot of people's lives. Uh, this is another one. Run through some. I don't think Doug even agreed with his wide receiver depth rating. Great argument, Stephen. Bad by Doug for the nine three seven. So someone else brought this up to me on Twitter after, uh, as you guys know, I wasn't at the Saturday uh, student appreciation day that scrimmage because I was I was off this weekend. But Nathan and Stephen were there, and I know that Carnell Tate had a great um, a great. Saturday again and looked really good and and people were saying like man he might be like the third best receiver on this team and someone pointed that out to me on Twitter and was like man if he's the third best receiver on this team how dumb is your depth rating Doug where I think I gave the receiver depth a seven and I would say that almost to me if that's the case almost backs up my point as it much as backs up someone who says it's a 10 that if you have a guy who's just here in the spring it's a freshman who just got here and he might be the third best receiver on your team I also think that's probably a stretch I mean we we're forgetting Emeka Buka and Julian Fleming because they're out and they're hurt this spring then how good is your depth right so um I do believe it you can disagree with it but I'm talking about depth right now that you could put on the field and even at Ohio State, there are extraordinary young guys. We understand that. But I just feel like a world where Jaden Ballard and Xavier Johnson are four and five, as much as you know, there's a lot to, to like about those guys, I just think we'd see a drop-off. So people can disagree, but I, you also know like I never say anything I don't actually think. Why would I do that on this podcast? So if you disagree, that's fine. Uh, more depth stuff. On your Wednesday show, it seems like every year we complain about offensive line depth, but I think every program in the country, including Alabama and Georgia, tell you the same thing. That's from the 937. I think that's a really smart point, that complaining about offensive line depth is very normal. We are talking about it in contrast to Ohio State. So we understand, I think, in a vacuum, guys take longer to develop there. As Ed Warner has pointed out to me in the past, offensive line recruiting is a bit more uncertain. There are more misses in offensive line recruiting. But what we're going off is a world where a year ago you had Paris Johnson and Dewan Jones and, and you didn't have those kind of questions at tackle. And and two years ago, you had four tackles on this team. And so I agree with the texter's point. Complaining about offensive line depth, I think, is a rite of passage in the spring. But I think in this particular instance, it's Ohio State compared to itself. And that's why I think the offensive line conversation is real and not just a thing you always do because it's a position that's maybe a little more difficult to get a handle on, if you understand what I'm saying. All right, some Ryan Day stuff that people sent in. And this is related to the Michigan conversation that we continue to, to need to have. Football is missing the Urban Meyer toughness. I worried that Day would be less demanding and too much of a nice guy. Urban was crazy demanding uh, in his demanding of excellence, and I think that has been missing from the 937. This is another familiar one. Jim Harbaugh kicking the crap out of Ohio State, then doubling down. He and his staff and his players talking smack all offseason, only to then come into Columbus and beat them down again, right? So they're talking about talking smack a year ago, then they win 
a second in a row. Staff got out coached in the two biggest games of the year last year. Day maybe Cooper. Cooper maybe Day from the 513. Oh, that was a nice voice crack. I am a grown adult who has gone through puberty. Hi, Doug. It feels like the program is slowly falling apart under Day. And the local media is giving him the benefit of the doubt when I don't feel he's earned it. It feels like Michigan taking players out of Ohio is an afterthought. I think Day for sure has done a good but not great job with coaching talent going up in the Big Ten. He needs to step it up. No two ways about it. Day has to do a better job 365 days a year, and especially that one Saturday in November. Thanks. That's Andrew in Boston. P.S. I'm still disappointed. No Ferrance has cried last year by my doing. So... Let's address those together, and it is the continuing conversation of this. And one thing is, to me, if you thought that after the way the Michigan game unfolded last year, nothing was changing, I would be more apt to not necessarily all the way agree with those criticisms, but be more on alert for like, is there something wrong here in the rivalry? And you could say, well, they lost to Michigan two years in a row. Of course, there's something wrong. And, and on the face, that is true. I do think they've made some necessary adjustments that we've covered, right? Ryan Day being willing to give up play calling, I think, is a huge adjustment. They've moved some staff stuff around to try to clear, clear his plate. We're talking about him being more involved throughout the team. I think that's a big deal. I think hiring someone like James Laurinaitis is a big deal. I think they are doing things to bring out the best in Ryan Day, and to bring out the best in this team, which is the most important thing, to bring out the best in this team on the last Saturday in November. We don't know if it's going to work, but I don't think you could just look and say, well, we'll just keep trying the same old thing. So that is why I am not um, coming hard with like, what's up with that right now? And then, well, and let me let me throw this one in here. What is bothering me is why it's April and I have not heard Michigan mentioned once in any of these presser comments. Why? From the 419. That's also part of this is it's always Michigan time. It's always Michigan time. It's always Michigan time. It's always Michigan time. But spring is when you get your footing. Spring is about yourself. Spring is about finding the players you can believe in. Spring is about growth inside. And if you don't do that in March and April, you're not going to win on the last Saturday in November. So I do think it is less about that. And there are enough things that we're curious about, first and foremost, quarterback competition, where there have not been a ton of questions about Michigan. And also, I've been doing this a while, and I don't like spending our valuable question time on things that I think have very little chance of getting answered meaningfully. So we get, so this is this week, this week we have Tony Alford, Keenan Bailey, running backs and tight ends. That's on Wednesday. That's our only availability with players this week. And then the next week we get Ryan Day on Tuesday. And then the spring game is on Saturday, April 15th. That Tuesday with Ryan Day, one more availability with Ryan Day might be worth a Michigan question. And I've got to try to come up with a way to phrase it the right way to try to get an answer. But there there might be a time to do that because you always think about Michigan. But I do think you have to acknowledge, A, it feels like Ohio State's trying to do some things differently. And then I think you have to acknowledge that still in the grand scheme of things, and if you listen to the College Football Survivor Show at all, where I co-host that with Shahan J. Haraja, Shahan says all the time that, that Ohio State 
is probably the the steadiest, winningest program in the country, and that there are three teams that are separated from everybody right now, and it's Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. So, is Ohio State, Georgia, and Alabama? No. But I don't think it's worth losing track of where Ohio State is in the national picture while having concern about the Michigan game. And so... I do think there are ways that Ohio State can needs to attack that game better. But from what I think I've seen, the changes, I think they have a chance to attack it better. So, But the first thing they have to do is pick the right quarterback. The first thing they have to do is get the tackle straightened out. The first thing they have to do is take the next step with the defense in year two under Jim Knowles. None of that specifically has to do with Michigan. So I understand wanting to hear about that. And I do think we'll ask a million questions about it in July at Big Ten Media Day. We'll ask a million questions about it in August when preseason camp starts. It just feels like it's not where the conversation is right now because they have to get themselves straight first. Does that... I can understand disagreeing with that. But, you know, I'm I'm trying... I'm asking and working on some stuff. I'd love to have some conversations with people. Uh, maybe I'll move the a Michigan conversation higher on my list of things if I do get an opportunity to talk to some people. So uh, I, I, I know I know why you guys are asking it. From the 513, Doug, a short rant. Since the Georgia loss, I haven't been interested in anything Ohio State sports. I am sure the passion will come back in August, but I just haven't cared. I haven't listened to a pod since. Sorry when I listened every day since just after you started doing it with Bill and Ari. It isn't you guys, right? This, this is a Scott in the 513 who's been a listener since the beginning, and it's not there right now. I haven't listened to anyone and have been deleting texts as soon as I get them until I saw this. I hope you guys are doing well. So Scott's not going to hear this, <laughs> and uh, that's okay. I understand getting away for from it for a little bit. I think the joy discussion and sometimes I feel like I'm repeating myself, but if it's something people are asking about, then I'm willing and then I think it's needed. You know, if you ask about it, I want to talk about it. And I, I basically grabbed almost every text I got for the rants call out this t- this time. I do think in the search for joy, sometimes if you if if your favorite team is only bringing you misery, or frustration, or disappointment, then stepping away is a very reasonable thing. I do also think that in a world where the team in the nation that had the best chance to compete with the national champ last year was Ohio State, that allowing a one-point loss to the two-time defending national champs to mean that you can't partake in the thing you love so much might be setting the bar too high. And I understand that sometimes being that close is more frustrating, but I just don't think that getting blown off the field would have been better. And so I did feel like, I think you guys felt it, the survey certainly showed us that, that the Georgia loss did lift up a lot of people from the low of the Michigan loss. That was about as good of a loss as heart- heartbreaking, but also encouraging, I think, in a lot of ways. And so if that didn't happen for you, I get that. But I think it's a dangerous road where if you if you can enjoy your team when it's where Ohio State is right now. It's just, there's then there's not a lot of programs that you could enjoy. And I understand that, well, you set the bar so high, you never would set the bar that high at Purdue. So if Purdue goes eight and four, you can love it. Purdue, if Ohio State went eight and four, you'd go crazy. I understand that. Um, so to Scott, we'll welcome you back with open arms in August. Thanks for the question. And um, I'm not, 
uh, we ought to also understand that there are plenty of people who are there. And we're going to get to some stuff later, but that's a little bit of, and coupled with the dismal Ohio State basketball season, that's why I tried to hear on the pod with a couple things I wrote, not a ton. I'm not going to pretend to go in and be an expert on women's hockey, be an expert on women's basketball, but I wrote a thing about each one. I went to an interview session, right? Tried to do a little, bring a little bit of that because we know that there are frustrations with the two main sports that people follow with football, men's basketball. But meanwhile, there are plenty of other Ohio State teams having great success. So uh, certainly I dipped into that pool maybe more than I have in 10 years because you could sense the frustration otherwise uh, with, with plenty of you guys, which again, I get. As a 1966 grad, I have little hope for both the basketball and football programs. Their coaches show little emotion that could fire up the athletes. That's my opinion from the 864. And my answer to all this stuff is please don't lump football and men's basketball together. We cannot lump a team that was one of four teams to make the college football playoff in with the team that finished 13th in the Big Ten. That was one of three Big Ten teams that did not make any postseason basketball tournament. We just can't do that. It's not productive. It's not winning a national championship and then everybody else is lumped together if you don't have a national championship. It's just not realistic. So we can. You, you, I would advise, like, certainly being frustrated with both programs, but it has to be in separate ways. It has to be in separate ways. It just is nonsensical to attempt to describe what happened with Ohio State men's basketball this season and what happened with football this season in the same way. So, and and like if we have to be able to splice it that way, we have to be able to splice it that way. If we're going to have meaningful discussions about expectations and standards and how to get better and the journey to do that. So um, I'm, I'm here, right? We're all here for frustration, disappointment talk, but it, we can't just... It can't just be a big frustration barrel where we all dive in. Okay, when we come back, a few more things about football. Something about peanut butter and a hamburger, but it's mostly football. And then at the end, we'll get into some other sports. We'll do it all next on Buckeye Talk. Doug back, 614-350-3315 if you'd like to be a tech subscriber. We certainly would welcome you. Are now, you are now officially in the window where if you started, as you hear this, if you send a text to that number, you're now in the window where the two-week free trial would take you through the spring game because we are fewer than two weeks away from the spring game. And that means you get all those texts like the day of the spring game. We're down on the field. We're watching guys stretch. There's recruits there. And then during the game, you're watching it, but we're trying, you know, we're giving you our analysis as it happens. And then after the game, it's a good time to do it. It really is. So I do think there could be value in having us in your phone during the spring game, 614 Three five zero three three one five, and if you are already a tech subscriber, if you've been a tech subscriber and stopped, and maybe you'll start again in the future, who knows? You help pay us, so thank you. And if you listen to this podcast, you help pay us because we sell ads, so thank you. This is from Ryan in the five one three. I know how the hiring the guy down the hall looks most times, especially when related to Urban. But is Corey Dennis getting enough credit for the job he's done? Obviously, it's been Ryan Day doing a lot of the heavy lifting up to this point, but Dennis has put in the hours on the recruiting trail and built relationships. One thing I think may be overlooked in this whole day transition to a culture coach and spending more time with the defense is that he's also spending less time with his pride and joy in the quarterback room. 
does this not partially show how much he trusts Dennis? Obviously, Day will still be heavily involved there, but with more time devoted to defense means more time for Dennis to prove his worth, and I think he deserves at least some credit up to this point. Thanks for all you do, Ryan, from the 513. So this is just like you guys just like setting me up, right? And so, listen, just to be clear, I don't have anything personally against Corey Dennis. I don't think he was qualified for the job that he got when he was hired in January of 2020 to be the full-time quarterbacks coach. I, I don't think he was qualified for the job. And I don't, I think if he wasn't related to Urban Meyer, he wouldn't have gotten it. That is where most of this comes from. So do I know exactly all the ins and outs of exactly what he's doing and how well he's doing? No, I don't. I can't, I'm not going to pretend that I do. Uh, I will say that Todd Fitch, who is an analyst, who has a lot of quarterback coaching in his background, who has a relationship with Ryan Day in his background, is heavily involved in this stuff. His name comes up all the time. When you talk to CJ Stroud, when you talk to anybody else about the quarterbacks, Todd Fitch, his name comes up a lot. Ryan Day's name comes up a lot. The, like, Just to me, when you talk about that position, you more quickly hear other people's names than when you talk about other positions. Usually, to me, almost every other position that you talk about, the first name out of people's mouths is the position coach. It just feels like to me still, when you talk about quarterbacks, Corey Dennis is not the first name out of people's mouths. That's just my perception of that from talking to people. And so on the recruiting trail, does he develop relationships? Yes, he certainly does. But again, what what is what's the payoff of that, right, for Ohio State? So CJ Stroud, Jack Miller, right? C Corey Dennis is around, but they're ready to go. That's not really Corey Dennis stuff before CJ Stroud gets here. So Quinn Ewers gets here, but then leaves. Kyle, that's in, in 21. Kyle McCord's in the class of 2021. That's built by Ryan Day, right? Kyle McCord is Ryan Day's guy, right? So to me, really, 2022 is the first time I feel like you really can have heavy, heavy lifting at the position coach in the quarterback room. Not that Corey Dennis wasn't involved to varying degrees because he was, you know, a grad assistant or a quality control guy around quarterbacks previously. Devin Brown, Corey Dennis helped build that relationship. Decommits from USC. Corey Dennis goes out to Utah to see him. That's part of it. Ryan Day also goes out. So certainly, I do think Corey Dennis was obviously involved in a big way in the recruitment of Devin Brown, who was the number six quarterback recruit in the country, according to 247 Sports, number 43 overall player, and, and he's now currently battling to be Ohio State's starting quarterback. Credit there. Class of 23, Lincoln Keenholz. He's the number 15 quarterback, the number 189 overall player. Like, you get a quarterback. I get it. Corey Dennis goes out there and does that. I just don't know, like, is that a big win at quarterback for Ohio State? And then 2024, Dylan Rayola decommits. And now they've offered Aaron Noland, who's a guy that, that Steven has written about, number eight quarterback, number 84 overall player. And that would be a good get. But they also we also know the guys in this class. Jaden Davis goes to Michigan. Dylan Rayola is probably going to wind up at Georgia or USC or Nebraska. And... It's, you know, not that Aaron Nolan would be a bad quarterback, but if, if like, we're leaning on, let's make sure we give Corey Dennis for credit and the relationships he's building, like, where, what is the home run? What's the thing? I mean, maybe it's Devin Brown. I, I don't know. And I don't, I don't want to live in a world, and if, and if you feel like I've ever done this, where anything right in the quarterback room, I give credit to Ryan Day or Todd Fitch. Anything wrong in the quarterback room, I blame Corey Dennis. That certainly is not fair. If I've done that, that's not fair. And I don't want to do that. 
but we just want to talk about it. it does feel like I think that Corey Dennis is probably is more involved in the recruitment of quarterbacks than in the, the fine detail coaching of quarterbacks as compared to what Todd Fitch and Ryan Day do. So if we're going to lean on that recruiting of quarterbacks, then those are the facts of the guys that he's been heavily involved in and what's happened. So um, it's hard for me to get past the start. So like, is it, and then like right now, like, what does it mean to the Ohio State quarterback room? I mean, their quarterback play has been pretty darn good, right? So it's a tough discussion uh, to really say that you know for sure, right, who's doing what. Because it's just a more, there's more shifts in that kitchen with the quarterbacks than maybe, you know, defensive line. I don't think we have a lot of questions about who's who's in charge of recruiting and developing defensive linemen at Ohio State. It's Larry Johnson. I don't think we have a lot of question about, okay, who's developing and, and recruiting cornerbacks right now. It's Tim Walton. I, there's not a lot of, oh, well, it might be this guy. Who's doing running backs? It's Tony Alford, right? Like it's We know that. It's more complicated to assess in the quarterback room. So that's where I am, and I understand what you're saying, and I don't want to not give him credit there, but that's Devin Brown, really highly rated quarterback recruit. Lincoln Keenholz is kind of a step back year. Maybe they don't go for as big of a guy. They wind up getting him. So I think it's a good solid in-between recruit. And Aaron Noland, a top 10 quarterback, I guess that's pretty good if that's who ends up being here. Okay. I do want to address this because I've done re- reporting on this. I haven't written it. And I've talked to multiple people about this. Don from Jersey. And this is, this is it feels a little bit old now. People asked it like right after it happened. I started reporting on it right away. It kind of took me a while to try to get different people uh, on the record about things, I still feel like I want to write it because I think it's an important point to make. Don from Jersey, here's my rant. It's become obvious to me that the NCAA, the league officials, many of the teams, coaches, and medical staff do not really care about the health and safety of relatively young people in their care. The Marvin Harrison Jr. non-targeting call and the Virginia Tech women's player are just two recent Ohio State-related examples. Using the Marvin Harrison Jr. play... As an example, if you are in the replay booth and the NCAA or league told you your first priority is protecting players, you uphold the targeting call, if for no other reason than sending a message to the millions watching a college football playoff game. So that's Don from Jersey. And the Virginia Tech player is Georgia Amour, point guard for Virginia Tech, gets hit in the chin in the Elite Eight game against Ohio State. She goes down. She's helped off the court with her arm around somebody else. She looks woozy as she walks. Then she has both arms around people and is led back off the court, down a little tunnel. She comes back to the bench very quickly within minutes. I think misses 44 seconds of actual game action, and I timed it out. I think it's about four minutes between getting hit in the chin and getting ready to check back in the game. And here's the second question about that. And I do think this is Marvin Harrison Jr. related. From the 614, how is there not consistency in in outside handling How is there not consistency and outside handling of concussion protocols at major college events? I understand it's not feasible to provide independent neurologists at every regular season event, but in major events like the college football playoff and the men's and women's basketball tournaments, player safety cannot be left to the sole discretion of how seriously each school takes these matters. Maybe Georgia O'More was not concussed the other night, but as you pointed out, the evaluation to determine the seriousness of her injury, given the visible symptoms, should have taken longer than a minute. I want Ohio State to continue to do right by their players like they did with Marvin Harrison Jr., but they should not continue to be put at a disadvantage for handling these situations correctly while other programs do not. That is the nut. That is a great text because that basically covers everything 
that I feel about this. So the main thing about this, any discussion, and, and I was double checking on some stuff. I was going back and researching things that I've done in the past. I have written a fair amount about concussions in my time covering this. I, it is an issue that I, I think needs continued scrutiny, continued awareness. So the number one thing, health and welfare, health and safety and well-being of young amateur athletes in the care of these schools. That is the bottom line. Of course, of course, of course, that's what matters. But within every discussion that we have about this, whether it's concussions, whether it's NIL, whether it's the transfer portal, when we talk about the health and well-being of players, when we talk about the rights of players, all these things, it does not exist in a vacuum. Because it is a sports conversation, and any sports conversation we have at any kind of high level, in Little League, in AAU basketball, competitive balance is part of the equation. It is not the most important part of it, but we cannot pretend it is not a valuable part of it. So what this texture smartly brings up is the number one thing you have to do is look out for that player's well-being. And that means doing full and fair evaluations of their health in the moment. And that means a concussion evaluation. And I talked to a, a correspondent with a concussion expert after Georgia Amore was hit in the chin and came back in the game so soon, they said, they told me, there is no way a full concussion evaluation could have been done in the amount of time that she was out of the game. I talked to another health professional who said there is no way that a full concussion evaluation could have been done in the time that she was out of the game. And both those people said that given her symptoms, given what she showed, a full concussion evaluation should have been done. So the issue is not only did she have a concussion. The issue is, did she show symptoms that would lead you to the idea that she possibly could have a concussion? And I don't want to have a 75-minute concussion conversation here, but the shorthand of this is there are two main issues with concussions. One is the prolonged, long-term effect of CTE and what repeated concussions over the course of your life can do to your brain. That's what we talk about when people pass away, when people have loss of, of cognitive function late in life, dementia, memory loss, personality change. And you talk about that, whether it's a football player, whether it's a rugby player, whether it's a soccer player, somebody who has had multiple concussions over the course of their life, and there is a cumulative effect over weeks, months, years. The other is the idea that if you get a second concussion on top of a concussion right away, it can have devastating consequences in that moment. It can have very, very serious consequences in that moment. So if you get a concussion in a game, the main issue becomes you cannot get a second concussion in that game, or we are in a, you are potentially in a very serious situation right there that is not long-term, it's short-term. You could have very serious problems right there from a health standpoint. So when someone maybe has a concussion, you must determine in that moment, that they did not have a concussion before you can put them back out there to fall and hit their head on the court, to fall and hit their head on the turf, to absorb a blow, to run into somebody's body that causes another blow. That second impact syndrome is really serious, which is why you have to do a real evaluation in the moment. So the issue is, Ohio State, and this is where it becomes an Ohio State story to me, and I think I'm still going to write this this week because I've done enough reporting on it. Marvin Harrison Jr. in the moment, Ohio State believed that he lost consciousness 
it, even if it was briefly, but at some point in time after the initial hit and the way he went down, those were concussion symptoms. So they took him off the field. He did not leave the field as woozy as Georgia Amore left the court, but he left the field in a way and he was examined thoroughly in the medical tent. And the decision was made by Ohio State because he exhibited symptoms. And the symptom itself can be you lost consciousness. That is a, a potential sign of a concussion, possible sign, possible symptom of a concussion that they could not put him back in the game because they could not risk it in that moment. And the concussion expert I spoke to said in a big time situation, Ohio State made a very difficult decision to keep Marvin Harrison Jr. out of that game. And he applauds them for that. In a very similar situation, you have a Georgia, excuse me, a Virginia Tech player who is leaving the court at least has a woozy moment, is helped off the court. She says after the game, I got, I took a blow to the chin, right? And I was a little off center for a moment. Did she have a concussion? I don't know. She came back in and played in a manner that would maybe lead you to believe that she did not have a concussion. But I think it is unquestionable that she had enough concussion symptoms to require a thorough evalu evaluation, which would at least would have cost her some time in the game. At the very least, I'm not saying that she should not have been definitively not allowed to play the rest of the game, but you have to check her out. You can't rush her back in because it's a big game and you you want her back on the court. So in that situation, to me, Ohio State is at a disadvantage from a competitive balance standpoint because they gave their player a thorough evaluation and then chose to not let him back in the game. And I think, and medical experts are telling me, Virginia Tech did not give their player a thorough evaluation, and then she did go back in the game. But even if Marvin Harrison Jr. had gone back in the game, he would have missed time during this thorough evaluation. Even if Georgia Amore had been able to go back in the game, she would have missed more time during this thorough evaluation. And you can't reward teams for rushing or ignoring an evaluation in a big game. And this is what that text is saying. Why is that up to the individual medical professional? All these schools sign concussion forms that they send to the NCAA. And all of them say, if you exhibit any of these signs or symptoms, you will be evaluated in a thorough manner. So are there penalties if you don't do that? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like it's more of a suggestion. And the NCAA is inept. And the NCAA, when I emailed them about this topic, they said they choose not to comment. And I emailed back to the NCAA, shocker. The NCAA chooses not to comment about a serious issue. Who Who's shocked by that? The NCAA ignoring things. We currently live in a world where they will spend innumerable minutes checking in a basketball game whether someone's fingernail touched a ball or not to determine on replay review who should have possession of the ball. But they are willing, it seems like in this case, to rush through a concussion evaluation. So I think a couple things could happen here. I think you could pause a game. When a player exhibits concussion symptoms, if you want to pause the game, just like you pause the game to check whose fingernail the ball went off of, if you want to pause the game while a thorough evaluation is done, great, let's do that. I also think if you are going to have, and again, maybe it's not every game, but maybe when you get to the postseason, if you are going to have people who are reviewing plays from a remote location and helping the officials through that, you could have a concussion evaluator who in that moment says, we need a concussion evaluation here. It's not about 
whether they have it. It's about whether they show symptoms that show they might have it. And then does everyone follow the same in-depth process that puts the health and well-being of the player first and foremost, and also doesn't rush anything, and the school loses time with the player during the evaluation. So either pause the game or just accept the fact that you're going to be out without the player for a certain period of time. I think in this situation, Ohio State did the right thing with Marvin Harrison Jr. I think Virginia Tech did the wrong thing with their star player, and the result is Ohio State might have lost a chance at a national title, and Virginia Tech went to the Final Four. And I think those two decisions contributed to those outcomes. But who did the right thing? Who would you want your school to be? So part of this to me is that the probably, and I would be part of this, the Marvin Harrison Jr. decision by Ohio State has probably not been pointed out enough as doing the right thing. And now we have a direct contrast in a game against Ohio State where I think Virginia Tech did not do a thorough enough evaluation. So I think this is a big deal. I think the NCAA needs to address this. And if we're going to review every possession, every foul call, right, that will stop the game for, but we won't stop the game to check on someone's brain, right? Where are our priorities? And then I thought ESPN did a terrible job in the moment of that game, and I emailed ESPN for comment. And they said they stood by their announcers. They said some other things on background. They said they stand by their announcers. But they're afraid to talk about it. So nobody wants to speculate on whether somebody has a concussion. But you know what you can speculate on? Because we speculate on every other stinking thing in sports. You can speculate on what should be the procedure installed here. There should be a thorough evaluation done. You're not a doctor. You don't know if the person has a concussion or not. You can see the possible signs and symptoms as an announcer and have a real discussion about brain health in the middle of a game rather than presenting a world where you act like this tough player came back in quickly and somebody watching at home, a young athlete to me, watching at home during that Ohio State-Virginia Tech women's basketball game last week, to me, a young athlete watching at home in a similar situation, the lesson they would learn is shake it off and get back in the game. People will think you're tough. When we are a decade past that, we are a decade past rub dirt on your brain. We are a decade past ignoring brain health. And I think that we are so afraid to address it. We'll address everything else, but we're afraid to talk about it. You heard the announcer say, oh, that doesn't look good. They never said anything about possible concussion because they're afraid of it. But you can't, we're not asking you to diagnose a concussion. We're asking you to be smart about process. So I thought it was unconscionable the way ESPN handled it. I think it's unconscionable that the NCAA won't, won't comment on it. And I think Virginia Tech failed their player and gained a competitive advantage while doing so. That's long. I, I thought it was terrible. I really thought it was terrible. And I'm going to, I need to write about it because um, we had a great. And again, like this women's basketball tournament was fantastic. And we wind up on some side conversations about things because I think the sport is growing. The play is awesome. The players are tremendous. And there are side issues that are not being handled the right way. Multiple ways with the way people talk about women's basketball. Women's basketball deserves better. And it deserves to treat a potential concussion as seriously as, as football does. And that means that's a priority. And that means that's a process. And that means we call it out when it's wrong. I'm sorry. Let's talk about Michigan. I said we'd talk about Michigan. So what will it take for Ohio State to finally shut Michigan up? 
Improved defense, better running game with the Ryan Day from the Georgia game have beaten Michigan? Ugh. I understand to the victor goes the spoils, but the last two years have seemed to completely erased any and everything from their minds of who Ohio State was and is. Is a win in Ann Arbor even possible from the 419? So that is the conversation that I think we're, we're going to have in this series we want to do about Ohio State and Michigan. But it's a real one we have to do before that, too, which is Michigan's really, really confident about this right now. We did a brief story on our site last week. Michigan has the flag that they planted in Columbus. They now have in their football museum up in Ann Arbor. And so Jim Harbaugh is leaning into this. And Jim Harbaugh, I do think, has managed to basically do away with everything there was before, right? And so this is a very difficult situation, I think. I don't know what the right situation is for Ohio State to handle it. Because I think in the past, we saw Ohio State, we saw Michigan try to talk it while they weren't walking it, right? The revenge tour, Chase Winovich, right? That kind of thing. They were talking it when they weren't competing on the field. So I don't know how Ohio State should handle the Michigan rivalry right now because they've lost the last two on the field. So I think you probably keep your mouth shut and get to work. I think that's probably the right thing to do, but I also certainly would understand for Ohio State fans, for you guys, that it would be incredibly frustrating to watch Michigan puff its chest out. But guess what? They've won the last two. That's what you get. So I will do a survey about this. This is one of the things. The way Ohio State should be playing this from an emotional standpoint, from a talk standpoint, I think it's a tough needle to thread. And it's just an, an unusual situation. And this is like Harbaugh at his best, right? This is Harbaugh at his most annoying, right? Because before Ohio State fans were annoyed by him because he was doing weird stuff and not winning. And now he's winning and then he is rubbing it in. So we go from the third base comment to now the flag being in the museum. Like I, what the, the, the point that the text is asking, what do you, I you just win? There's no other thing you can do. And it's not about how much you run it or what it's just win until Ohio state wins again. I just, I don't think there's much to do, but I think we should talk about it. And I think we should get your suggestions on that. And we will, it's on my list. We will do that for sure. Hi, Doug. This is Tom from North Carolina. I don't have a rant per se, but rather a hypothesis. I think the current coaching staff is bloated and frankly overpaid. I know you have issues with Parker Fleming, but I think the reason that Michigan has passed us the last two years is directly related to the coaching staff. Larry Johnson is a problem on several levels. He contradicts the defensive coordinator and seems untouchable. His death days are behind him. And while his forte has been recruiting, he has fallen off a bit. We need a new, new blood in there. Same could be argued about the running back coach. I would rather see coaches leave than stay and be overpaid. Anytime Ohio State panics and bumps a title or pay, I think it's the wrong move. Ohio State as a brand can attract the top coaches as well as the top players. Let Hartline go if he gets an offer. Let Fry go to Indiana. Fine. Do not keep inflating their salaries and their titles. And for coaches like Fleming and Walton, did they deserve a raise? If these guys have options, let them go. There is not one Ohio State assistant who cannot be replaced. I mean, that sounds like, right? That last line sounds like I wrote it, which usually people disagree with me on that. So I do think the turnaround at Michigan was spurred by Harbaugh being forced to overhaul his staff. And I think they got in a lot of new blood and it was really helpful. I don't think Ohio State's at that point, but if it doesn't go well this year, I think that might be next. So I generally subscribe to the idea that Ohio State should be able to attract great talent. I, there is a fine line between continuity and being stale. And I understand 
wanting to reward people who have done good work for you and also wanting to surround people that you know and trust. And I think Parker Fleming, Corey Dennis, and Keenan Bailey in Ryan Day's mind would all fit into that. But also, I think sometimes you need new blood. And I'm not there yet, but Ryan Day, Brian Hartline's not new blood. Brian Hartline's good. No, no, nobody's complaining about Brian Hartline. Justin Fry is someone that Ryan Day knew before. Um, they got new blood on the defensive side, right? But like Ryan Day has not really gotten new blood on the offensive side. That that when they got rid of Greg Stradwa, like Ryan Day kept most of the people from Urban Staff that he inherited. Tony Alford he inherited. Brian Hartline he inherited, and then Corey Dennis and Keenan Bailey are internal hires. So I think it's worth monitoring. And I do think you need to strike that balance. I think you can get too familiar. I think you do need outside ideas. I do think you need people to push you and force you to change and make you uncomfortable at times. Do I think it's the doom? It's going to be the downfall of Ohio State right now? No. I've made my views about the three internal hires known many times. But I think it's worth being on alert for. And when... You do all the positive things that I cite when I cite those. Again, how many teams could compete with Georgia? Ohio State can. They lost two games to two teams that made the playoff, right? It's not a it's not a program in that's falling apart. It's not. It's a program that hasn't beaten its rival the last two years and took the national champs to the to the wall. So I think it's worth watching. And I think it's a smart text, and we hear you, and I'm not disagreeing. And But by the way, Tony Alford, right, Tony Alford's gone in these recruiting cycles where it's like he's been really up and then they miss on some guys and they're really up again. So um, James Peoples, to get that running back commitment on Sunday was a big deal. Feels like the Travion Henderson commitment. We're planning, I think the idea is to have a recruiting podcast sometime this week. So we'll get into that more then. But I hear you. I hear you. And it is the next thing um, that I would go to if if this season doesn't go as Ohio State wants it. So that's where I am on that. Please keep listeners in mind that we have no idea what terms like Jack or Mike or any non-illustrated term mean. We are not there in person on the TV telecast. I certainly do not use those terms. If you are gifted with words, please put them to use in a verbal way to help listeners understand. Erg from the 843. It's a great text and it's easy to fall into this. So let's do a little run through right now for everybody and we will try to get away from those terms at least if not not to say them on their own so the the linebacker positions traditionally right you have a middle linebacker you have a weak side linebacker and you have a strong side linebacker usually the weak the strong side is more like where the tight end lines up you maybe need to take on that tight end there's more guys on that side of the field weak side is more of a run and tackle a little more freedom a little more in space kind of play Ryan Shazier, A.J. Hawk were weak side linebackers. Ohio State's defense right now, they only run two linebackers most of the time. So they run a middle linebacker and a weak side linebacker. The middle linebacker is Tommy Eichenberg. The weak side, weak side linebacker is Steel Chambers. C.J. Hicks is a weak side linebacker. Cody Simon is a middle linebacker. They've used the terms Mike, middle, Will, weak side, and Sam, strong side. That's why they use those. It just starts with that letter. So when we say Mike linebacker, that's middle linebacker. When we say Will linebacker, that's weak side linebacker. Middle linebacker, Mike is like the quarterback of the defense. Will, 
more of a run-free, run-and-hit, make-plays-in-space kind of guy. But when you only have two linebackers, the distinction is much less. So when you have three linebackers, it was it was really much more of a thing um, where, where that would be the case. And then even in the world, right, strong side linebacker, like my first year here, Anthony in 2005, Anthony Schlegel's the middle linebacker, A.J. Hawk's the weak side linebacker, Bobby Carpenter's a strong side linebacker, and then he's down like as a rush end sometimes. When you started using that, instead of a tight end, it might be a slot receiver, that Sam linebacker started to be much more versatile right? That strong side linebacker. So the positions have changed, but that's what Will and Mike mean. Mike is middle. Will is weak side. The Jack is a term and, and some, some people use different terms here, which is why it can be extra confusing. Cause it's not the same as like, everybody knows what a safety is. Everybody knows what a cornerback is. Jack is a, is a stand up rush end. So when we talk about a defensive end, those are the two guys on the end of the line. You put your hand in the dirt. Sometimes you stand up, but most of the time you have your hand down and you rush from the outside. The defensive tackles are inside them. The jack, the way Jim Knowles use it, is you take one of those defensive ends and you let him stand up and move around, but then he st- still, more often than not, is rushing the passer. So it's a rushing the passer kind of position, but instead of standing in one place or, or having your hand in the dirt in one place, you're standing up and maybe moving around. But it's basically a defensive end who stands up and moves around. So that's kind of how that works. And I've gotten a little actually tired. I think the, the names that Jim Knowles picked for the safeties, I'm tired of them. The adjuster is just a free safety, and the bandit is the strong safety. The free safety is deeper, a little bit more like the guy who's kind of the last line of the defense. The strong safety is a little bit down closer to the line of scrimmage in the box, right? So for Ohio State, the bandit is the strong safety, maybe closer to the line of scrimmage. The adjuster is the free safety back deep. I always think in, in 14 and 15, we had really good examples. Tyvis Powell, free safety. Vaughn, Mill, strong, Vaughn Bell, strong safety. More down, maybe more involved in coverage, right? That strong safety might be lined up more in coverage. The, the That adjuster or deep guy really is kind of back there to roam. Not as much locked up. But also, depending if there's motion sometimes from the offense, you might the deep guy might come down and the guy who's down might go deep. Before the snap, you're trying to confuse the quarterback. So you have to have the skill set to do both, but it's kind of what you do more often than not. So adjuster is free safety. Bandit is strong safety. So I hope that helps a little bit as like how we use these terms. And then the bullet for Ohio State, we we all use this nickel safety, slots, corner. It's the guy who covers the slot receiver more often than not, right? It's kind of that fifth defensive back. So back in the day, when we would talk about the bullet, that was a hybrid safety linebacker. Somebody who could tackle like a linebacker, cover like a safety. So that was that job. So this is still sort of like that, right? It's that nickel that nickel safety or a nickel corner who's in charge of covering the slot receiver. And I'm not a football coach, but I hope that helps a little bit. But we'll try to keep you guys in mind. Uh, last couple things. Hey guys, recently I've been getting bothered by the mispronunciation of asterisk and height. Everyone, and I mean everyone, says asterisk, asterisk, oh yeah, instead of asterisk, asterisk, and puts a TH sound at the end of height, height, right? Please spread the news of how these words should be properly pronounced, asterisk and height. So height is a thing, right, that people do say, I think it might be regional, that maybe some, I don't know if it's a Midwest thing or not. 
Asterisk is one of those things, and I, my wife makes fun of me all the time. Language evolves. I took three linguistics classes in college, and I pretend I'm a language expert with my wife, and she puts me in my place. Language evolves. I do think there is something to pronunciation. I also think there is something to the evolution of language. And we all have things that we say because of where we grew up regionally, because of the people we grew up around, because of just how people in our family said something. And so I understand being frustrated by it. I'm right. I'm on my still on my important kick. But also, I think we have to be open to the understanding of, you know, we don't talk the same way people talked in Shakespeare times. You know, I don't know what happened when people first stopped saying ye. People were like, man, nobody says ye anymore. What's with these kids today? They stopped saying thou. And here we are. And we're probably better off. So language evolves. I understand the frustration. I do think when it's something like this, right, we should probably try our best. But when it's people out in the world just kind of doing their thing, Ah, uh, maybe we all give each other a little grace, although I did a whole important thing like uh, three months ago. So who am I to say? Language evolves, but Doug still complains about it. But I know what you're saying. Let's talk about peanut butter and hamburgers. Rant, just in the 513 from the 937. Peanut butter on a hamburger. In West Lafayette, there is the Triple X restaurant, and they have a sandwich called the Dwayne Purvis All-American. If you love peanut butter, you've got to try this sometime. It is messy, but fantastic. A little background on Purvis. He was an All-American in football, and a back-to-back -back NCAA champion in the Javelin in the early 30s. He was also ranked third in the world in the Javelin in 1933. Then he, caught, he taught phys ed at Purdue after graduation. And I'm assuming he loved peanut butter? That's not in there. Did he love peanut butter? I love peanut butter. I definitely in my life have eaten a hamburger with peanut butter and bacon on it. I would say peanut butter, bacon, and meat are like three of my top five things. So I am down with, this is certainly not the first time we've heard of peanut butter on a burger, and I approve. I'm down with it. I think that that we are saying here that you should try this, right? So also do that, or maybe just go buy like a hamburger, like go buy some ground beef at the store, make a hamburger patty, and slather it in peanut butter. See what happens. I don't think it has to be named for a javelin guy in the 30s to put peanut butter on your hamburger. Do it in your house. I don't know what they charge. I can't believe we had a West Lafayette food question and Nathan wasn't here. So, uh, but yes, peanut butter on a hamburger, I approve. Sports betting. I hate how much gambling is permeating the sport. I don't have anything against gambling for fun, and people are free to do whatever they want. Lines are an interesting way to talk about a game. But so many ads are sports betting for sports betting apps, including you hear them on this podcast sometimes. Hearing the word value when talking about a sports bet seems crazy to me. Thinking the house won't win long term is naive. That is true. And while a few people might be able to make money, anyone promoting that the average person could come out ahead is borderline unethical. So I understand what you're saying there. And I would say I think that the two ways to go about it in this day and age, right, with how prevalent and easy it is now in Ohio and so many other places, one is to do it for fun. And that's how I've always viewed gambling, right? I used to like to go to the horse track when I was a kid. I've, you know, we've all gone to casinos in our lives. And I always say, when you go to a movie, you are definitely not going to come home with more money than you went with. If you go gambling for your entertainment, there is a small, minute chance that that could happen. But I think you have to view it as entertainment. So if you view it as entertainment, and 
I was going to go get ice cream, but I made a $3 bet on a basketball game instead. Then I think you can do it in a way that adds enjoyment to sports. Or you can really, really, really analyze it and try to hit 55% of your bets and grind it out. And I think that requires a lot of work. You don't have to be T-shoe. You don't have to have an algorithm. But I, you know, you really got to study it. But if you're doing any anything other than those two, treating it as, as entertainment and assuming you're going to lose, or really putting in a lot of work and grinding out, trying to grind out 54 or 55%, I do think you're fooling yourself. So I think there's a lot of room within those two things to do it in a way that doesn't ruin sports or ruin your life. But I think the point that in the end, if you think you are going to come out ahead without putting in a boatload of work, you're probably going to be wrong. Please have that in your head. And I don't think we want to lead anybody down the path of, hey, this is easy. I know, you know, Tishu and I had a lot of fun in the fall with the the first quarter Ohio State over, right? We acted like it was a sure thing. I think it might have gone nine and three or something. But I mean, we could do the same thing this fall and have it go three and nine. So uh, I hope on this podcast, when we talk about it, we'll do it in one of two ways, which is if you're interested, we're trying to educate you in a way that doesn't just tell you about betting, but tells you about the game. So even if you're not interested in betting, we're talking about how we think the game might play out, which I think if you're a fan is of interest to you, or we're just goofing around and having fun. But I'm never, my goodness, do I even have to say this? I'm never going to present myself as some kind of expert to bet your money on. I think we all know that, nine and three, right? We all know that. Okay, Uh, last thing here. And I'll preface this by saying, I asked a couple, maybe 10 days ago, if people would wanted to give us some reviews on Apple. And there certainly have been more than a handful that have shown up there. And thank you for everybody who took the time to do that. Very appreciative of that. We know it takes time. And it helps us a little bit when you do that. And so thank you to anyone who just gave us a review or has ever done it along the way. This is from the 312. My rant is that Doug asked for podcast reviews, so I wrote one and Apple won't publish it. So here it is. And this is long. It's so long that it cut off even on the text, which is, I think, why Apple (laughs) wouldn't publish it. And I apologize that it didn't happen because this texter is Trying to compare, not trying, apparently did compare Nathan, Stephen, and I to Ohio State players. But he started with me and then like everything else cut off. So I'll just read you mine. This is the best Ohio State pod out there and it's not particularly close. That's very kind. That's half a compliment to Buckeye Talk and half an indictment on the other Ohio State podcasts that exist from the major outlets, many of which are literally unlistenable. RIP to 4 to 6 with AMB, which was a strong number two. Our guys, Bill Lett and Asnari Wasserman. What is way more entertaining than simply saying the pod is good, however, is going a layer deeper and telling you who each Buckeye Talk host is as a former Ohio State athlete. Let's start with the ringleader, Doug. He's smart. He's an intellectual. He's a bit of an agitator. You love him if he's on your team and you hate him when he plays against you. He's a floor general and an overachiever. He sometimes comes off like a goody-goody and refuses to say curse words like B.A. This person said the curse word. In other words, he's Aaron Kraft. So I don't, I don't know what to think about that. He's one of the best in the Big Ten, but not really in the conversation nationally. And not going to get drafted anytime soon to ESPN. But he's ultra steady and highly effective at his job. So I don't want to not be happy 
with an Aaron Kraft comparison, but the part where, I mean, Aaron Kraft did like get a cup of coffee in the G League, right? Did not play in the NBA. It's not like I'm leaving for ESPN. So I guess that's nice. I guess that's nice. I don't know what Aaron Kraft about. I know I'm pretty sure what I, he would think about being compared to me, but I guess I'll take it. I don't know if I wanted to shoot a little higher than that. I would not take charges. I would not take charges. Uh, not worth it. I, but I think you do that. So that's a part of me that's not like Aaron Kraft. But anyway, thank you for the creativity. Thank you for the nice things. Sorry the rest of it cut off. Um, but we appreciate everybody who gave us a review. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about other things besides football. So if you're only here for football, you're not going to miss anything. If you want to talk a little bit about further Doug thoughts on Big Ten men's basketball, Ohio State men's basketball, Bryce Sensabaugh, Women's basketball. We'll do all of that next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Doug Beck, there's a couple really good texts that if you sent one in and you didn't hear us talk about it, it's because I grabbed them and we may do like entire shows about it. There's one about the run game. There's one about Ohio State missing a dynasty window. There's one comparing Jim Knowles to Ted Lasso. I saved them. And I just I didn't want to get into them by myself. I wanted to involve Nathan and Steven in that conversation. And I wanted to give us a little more room to dance there and not try to squeeze it in in sort of a list show. So thanks to all the great texts. Certainly appreciate it. Let's rant more appreciation. I want to send some kudos and appreciation to the greatness of the Ohio State women's basketball team making it to the Elite Eight. I really enjoyed watching their games and seeing our stars play well in those last few games go Bucks. I think that's well said. This was Ohio State's best women's basketball season since 1993. And J.C. Sheldon's coming back next year. So, and um, a, a lot of their other really good players. McMahon's only a freshman, right? Like, they're going to have more people back. So, uh, they have a chance to be really good again. And someone said this. I wish Kevin McGuff was the coach of the Buckeye men's basketball team based on what he's done with the Buckeye women's team. So certainly he's been more of a consistent winner, more sweet 16s, and it wasn't instantaneous. They had a blip in there. They were on like they had a, a year where they weren't eligible for the postseason because of some missteps uh, with some NCAA violations. But they've I think it's four sweet 16s now in a decade. So Better than the men who haven't been there since 13, which is partly the end of Thad Mata and partly the Chris Holtman era. Uh, but it wasn't overnight. And so I don't I don't want to only like use Kevin McGuff to say like, hey, Chris Holtman, why haven't you done this? Because I do think Kevin McGuff has gotten better over the years. And so that means that maybe that's out there. Maybe the best version of Chris Holtman is still to come. But there certainly was more, I think, high-level, consistent winning from the women's team and from Kevin McGuff along the way. So congratulations on their season. Again, they, they made the national title game in 1993 and they had not gotten past the sweet 16 since. And they got to the elite eight and I think wore down in the fourth quarter. They beat UConn, which is a big deal. Wore down in the fourth quarter against Virginia tech. But I do think there's uh, good things ahead for that program. Hey Doug, could we uh, make monthly or even quarterly the anti rants? That was a great format, honestly. So the anti-rants is what we did for Valentine's Day when we said, like, let's not complain. Let's say what you'd love about things. So I do think that's worth doing more than just once a year on Valentine's Day. So I do think maybe at least every three months checking in with that, giving people another, maybe letting some things happen to love, right? And then saying, hey, man, I just, I love this about being an Ohio State fan, about being a Buckeye, about being a sports fan, about being a college sports fan. I think that's worth doing. 
My rant this week is about Ohio State women's hoops and pizza. In short, the Lady Bucks need more height. So they're saying that Virginia Tech was having some – it's way with Ohio State at times. We've got to get some bigger girls down low. So, again, I'm not going to pretend to be the world's biggest expert. But I do know when, when Ohio State played Connecticut, like Connecticut's post player was an Ohio State transfer. She was in her second year at Connecticut. And it was like, okay, well, I think they had somebody and they lost her. So I also, when we had Kevin McGuff on this podcast, he is a little more interested in, you know, not playing as much through a post player, which I do think is probably smart generally, but matchups can be tough. So um, in general, thinking that the women need more presence in the post, I get it. We've got to get some bigger girls down low. As for pizza, I'm going to need a band of pizza-making New Yorkers to just disperse across the country. There's a shortage of good flat pies in this country outside of New York. Doug, as a Pennsylvania native, I'm sure you've had plenty of authentic New York pizza growing up three to four hours from New York City. You must know about the goods. I do, and it drives me nuts too. I have really lately started to eat much less pizza. And, and you guys, this was one of the core tenant of Buckeye Talk at one time. Just the triangle pizza versus square cut pizza. And again, like the, the, the chewy, crispy, thick handle of crust on a triangle pizza um, is just, I think, how pizza is supposed to be made. And it is just kind of difficult to find that in the middle of the country from local places. And you do like almost every like Midwestern area has like a New York style pizza. But it's one of those things that's like, you mean pizza? Like, what? It's just pizza. So I agree. I do think that, like, maybe it could be, like, Teach for America or Peace Corps. Like, you just get, like, young New Yorkers, and they learn how to make pizza, and then they go out in the world for two years. It's like a national – could the government get involved with this, or would it be a private company? That you go out into the world, and you make pizza for the masses until it becomes the norm. Teach America how to make and eat pizza the right way. I'm I'm here for that in a big way. Yo, French Vanilla, been a minute. You want a rant? I'll give you a rant. I'm done with Big Ten men's basketball. Am I a little ticked off that Purdue messed up my entire bracket in the first day? Absolutely. But it runs deeper than that. How does a conference that had eight tournament bids only get one team to the second weekend, and that was a seven seed, Michigan State? They possibly had at least three teams you could have argued could have gotten to the Final Four and they're standing with zero. Look, I know the tourney has been wonky this year, but this wasn't an underachievement by these Big Ten teams. It was a catastrophic failure of epic proportions. That's Josh in Orville, Ohio. And this is something I tweeted that 614 is commenting on. This isn't necessarily a rant, but Doug, you were 100% right when you said that Big Ten men's basketball isn't even a top 10 Big Ten sport right now. Just off the top of my head, football, women's basketball, women's volleyball, wrestling, men's and women's ice hockey, men's and women's lacrosse, women's gymnastics, and men's and women's soccer are all objectively better Big Ten sports from success and consistency. Also, most of those other sports were also regularly winning titles or seriously competing for titles on a consistent basis. Just wanted to say you're not crazy for saying that, LOL. So I didn't feel crazy saying it. And when I tweeted that, I was doing it to get a reaction a little bit, but I also, like, I, I hadn't gone through every sport quite to the extent that that texter had, but I also thought it, and I'm done waiting for a Big Ten men's basketball national championship. That is what I'm officially done waiting. I don't know that they're capable of it right now. And I think the only the only school capable of it, like, listen, Michigan's been close, and we've run through it a million times. 
Right, since the last Big Ten men's basketball title with Michigan State in 2000, Illinois has played in a title game, Indiana's played in a title game, Ohio State's played in a title game, Wisconsin's played in a title game, Michigan State's played in a title game, Michigan's played in two title games, and they haven't gotten it done. But I'm done. I don't think it's realistic right now. I don't think the status of the coaching is realistic. Izzo's the best coach in the conference, and he's no longer the best version of Izzo. So it's not fumes, but it's not peak Izzo. And nobody else has stepped up. I think Micah Shrewsbury is probably the best coach in the conference this year at Penn State. He's gone. He went to Notre Dame. So I, I think, and it's one of these things, here's how it applies to me and how we think about it. I just, I'm not going to have that conversation anymore because we, we have it every March. Somebody says, oh, it's been so long. I mean, it's been a long time since Army won a national title in football, right? But we don't talk about it every year because it's no longer a realistic conversation. That's what I'm approaching with Big Ten men's basketball. It's not a realistic conversation. Surprise us, great. But I'm not going to, oh, why haven't you won a title? But it's there for the taking. The conference is there for the taking. When you think about Ohio State women's basketball and what Iowa women's basketball was this year with Caitlin Clark and what Indiana women's basketball was this year as a one seed and what Maryland women's basketball was this year as a two seed and everything Ohio State did to be a three seed in the NCAA tournament to make the Elite Eight was done trying to push through those teams. There's nothing in the way of Ohio State men's basketball. So I also don't want to hear about what how tough this conference is. Like, I, are the games physical night to night? You play two games a week and you get beat up? Okay, yeah. But it's there for the taking. So go take it. There's nobody in your way. So I don't – it's tough. Oh, Big Ted. I, I don't want to hear it. This is not Izzo. This is not Bo Ryan at Wisconsin. This is not the best of Thad Mata. This is not Indiana when Indiana once upon a time was good. Purdue absolutely has a ceiling now that they're never going to bust through. You know, this it's absolutely there for anyone to take. This is not when Bill Self was at Illinois for a minute, right? Go be the best team in the Big Ten. You can be. You can. Anybody can be. So I would say the same thing if, if this was a podcast about Michigan basketball or Illinois basketball or Purdue basketball, or Indiana basketball, or Maryland basketball. I say that about a lot of places, but I'm certainly going to say it about Ohio State. There's nobody standing in your way. What's stopping you? And everybody was in the mix this year, except for three teams, and actually more like two. Like There was this big, giant middle in the Big Ten, and Ohio State couldn't be part of it. So like I don't – no national title talk, and nobody's standing in your way. Last one. Rant. It's fantastic that Bryce Sensabaugh is going to the next level, and he has completely earned that, and he's making the right decision. I'm happy for him. So he has declared for the NBA draft. He still does have the option to return. So he's not 1,000% gone, but he has declared. However, from Ohio State basketball, team player composition perspective, this strategy of getting players that are good enough to leave after one year but not so good that they help the team make a tournament run is awful middle ground. I have no issues with one and done, but if we're going to recruit these types of athletes, let's actually make it past the first weekend of the tournament. Otherwise, let's get players that won't leave after a year and will develop, and we can go into the tournament with experienced, solid seniors. So I agree. I think what Malachi Branham and Bryce Sensabaugh, the last two years for Ohio State basketball, from a team perspective, they have every right. Congratulations to them. Good individual season. Go get your money. From a team perspective, what did you get? What did you get? Now, listen, Michigan lost a guy. One of, one of Jawan Howard's kids declared for the draft. They didn't make the tournament this year, right? Hood Shafino from Indiana declared. What did they get? They didn't get to the Sweet 16. So I get that. But 
it does remind me, right after Ohio State made the national title game in the only year of Mike Conley and Greg Oden, they have a Costa Kufish year where they go to the NIT. Now they win the NIT. But that they didn't make the NCAA tournament. He's one and done. And then B.J. Mullins, they the next year lose as an eight seed in the first round to Siena with B.J. Mullins. He's one and done. And that's not great, right? So it's not the first time it's happened at Ohio State. So I do think in the end, it's possible that the, the exact right kind of guy that Chris Holtman is trying to get is Bruce Thornton. I, I think that's possible. That this guy has a chance to be a very, very good Big Ten player for three or four years. I, I don't know that he's going to be out the door after year two. And I think the way Roddy Gale finished the year, maybe he fits that as well. So I do think you can get trapped in that middle. And this was the question to me when Chris Holtman got hired is, at Butler, you kind of know what you're trying to do. At Butler, you're trying to get the guys who are going to be good college players for 40 years. At Ohio State, what are you trying to do? If you're only going to get those guys, I don't know that you're going to be everything you can. I, I would say you're not. I don't think you can run Butler's program at Ohio State and be everything that you you can be. So I do think you need an NBA guy, like probably every year. So I think the idea of like, hey, well, he, I mean, he got one. Malachi Branham, NBA guy, right? Okay. Bryce Sensabaugh. I mean, if he stays in the draft, he's probably going to stay in because he'd be a first-round pick. Okay. So I'm not going to – like, you're not um, criticizing Chris Holtman for recruiting those guys. I, I don't think you can do that because he can't beat Butler at Ohio State. But you have to find a way – I mean, it's, it goes, you got to win with them. You have to find a way to win with them. And I think you do that by adding guys like that to teams that have some dudes. So what you have to do is add a guy, like an NBA guy, to a team with some seniors and juniors that you can rely on. So Bryce Sensabaugh, you weren't adding him to anything like that this year. Malachi Branham, to have that with EJ Liddell, like you probably should have done something, right? They, they probably should have. So I, I don't think he's like completely going about it the wrong way, but they really got off this year with the roster management. And with building the roster. And you just, I think the way he's going to succeed ultimately is to consistently develop Bruce Thornton's and Roddy Gales who stay and are the backbone of your program and then supplement those guys with a one-and-done NBA guy. Maybe like every three years you get one, every four years. If you get one every two years, that'd be great. Right now you're looking at they have one back-to-back years probably, right? With Brandon and Sensabob, but what'd you get out of it? So it's great to develop talent. It's great to recruit talent and send talent to the league. That is part of your job. But man, you can't live on BJ Mullins and Costa Kufis. And Thad got caught there for a little bit too. But then you get out of that, that two year stretch where you had two one and done guys who went in the first round of the draft and got you zero NCAA tournament wins. Costa Kufis, BJ Mullins, first round picks, one and done, did not get you an NCAA tournament win. How did you get NCAA tournament wins? William Buford, John Diebler, David Lighty, Aaron Kraft. And then you supplement those very good long-term college players with 
the third year development of Evan Turner, with two years of Jared Sullinger, with NBA guys. Those other guys weren't NBA guys. So that's the model. Now, of course, easier said than done. But I think that's what's laid out there. So this was not that. This was terribly not that. Well, okay, well, you got to build up to that. Okay, well, that's what you want Bruce Thornton and Roddy Gale and Felix Opara and those guys to be. I get it. I just didn't think you had to be 13th in the Big Ten while you were building that. So I agree, though. You've got to build a backbone so that those one-and-done guys are – maybe they're leading you, but you can't ask a guy to come in and carry the burden unless they're going to be a lottery pick, unless they're Zion, right, which he's never going to get a Zion here, unless they're Greg Oden. And he's just not going to get that guy. So they're, they've put too much, right? Bryce Sensabaugh didn't develop defensively. Malachi Branham took him half a year to get where he was going to be. And then the result is you're losing a lot while these guys are becoming better players because you're asking too much of them while they are turning into first-round picks. So I agree with all that stuff. Okay, great stuff. We'll get more into Michigan stuff. We have other great questions. Sorry I went on that big concussion thing in the middle. I know some people maybe are not that interested in that. I just think it's a valuable part. A value, it's a necessary part of the discussion around college athletics right now. So we did 15 minutes on it in the middle. But I always appreciate you guys making Buckeye Talk part of your Ohio State experience. The plan is to be back on Tuesday with uh, the three of us talking about Ohio State safeties, Sonny Styles, etc. And then we'll hit some recruiting later in the week. And then we will have some running back and tight end conversation after we after we talk to those guys in the middle of the week. But for now, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk.